You are listening to a message from Foothills Church in Miraville, Tennessee. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com. This morning as we get started, I want to uh, play a little game. And so we're going to have some pictures from different times of pop culture, and I want you guys to identify uh, what they are. And so if we'll go ahead and, and throw one up on the screen, what, what is this? Eight track, okay. There's still some people in the third service who know what this is, absolutely. All right, what's the, uh, what's the next one? Viewmaster, I didn't kind of read that. You guys remember those as kids, right? This is when I was a kid. You would look through, see all those pictures. All right, what's, what's next? The, the Reebok pumps, right? These were the most incredible shoes ever. If you had them, and, and the pumps, they would break after like two months, but still, they were incredible. And, and now I think they're back. I see people wearing them again. So Reebok pumps, and then the iPod, right? We all know this one. So, so this, this came out around 2000. And, and so what you can see is, is there is a lot of change that has taken place in culture. When you go from the eight track to the iPod, right? There's a lot that's happened. There's a lot that's changed. And that's not the only thing that's changed in culture. Lots of, of components of culture are constantly changing. They're constantly moving. Um, and, and I'll say as, as we consider that reality as a church, one of the ways in which culture is changing is the way in which they view the church and the way in which culture views uh, the, the beliefs and positions of the Bible. Uh, there was a time when the American culture, and, and specifically culture here in the South, looked a lot like the church. And the positions that, that people held on, on moral values and issues typically were, were similar to what the church held. And, and so there was not this, this complete rejection or opposition to the beliefs of the church. But that's not the case anymore. Right? Often now, culture, and, and more and more all the time, is opposed to the beliefs of Christianity and opposed to the beliefs of the Bible. And there are two ways that we can respond to this reality, this changing culture around us uh, as Christians, and two ways that people predominantly do. The first is that people will completely reject popular culture. People will, will see culture as something that is, is inherently bad and something that we need to keep our distance from and be careful or it will pollute us, right? It will get in us and so we need to, to keep our distance. And so these kind of people uh, will not go and watch movies or, or, or listen to secular music or, or even wear clothes and haircuts that are pot. Like they just want to stay distant from culture, kind of behind the walls and defend themselves. And, and they're, the only time they really come out is to tell how outraged they are at the problems with culture. On the other side, you have people uh, who, who basically accept pretty much everything in culture, right? They, they would say that, that the church's biggest problem is we're irrelevant, right? That, that we're, we're so disconnected from culture. And so the answer is that we need to be more like the culture. We need to accept more components of the culture. And basically what ends up happening in these churches and these Christians is that their lives look pretty much like everyone around them, but they're telling people Jesus loves them, right? And so these churches, it's, it's everything is about tolerance and acceptance, and we look very much like the culture around us. Now, these are kind of polar opposites, and, and I would say that there's problems on both sides, and, and probably all of us would recognize, yeah, I don't want to land there or there, but the question is, where do we land, right? How do we engage with people and, and cultural realities around us as Christians? And, and I think it's, it's a difficult thing. 
right? I think that it's not an easy question of, of how do we engage and interact with culture, uh, but I think it's one that God's word gives us, gives us uh, direction, and we need to look to that as we engage culture. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at a passage of scripture that I think is helpful for us as we consider this question of engaging culture. So if you have your Bibles, if you would turn to Acts 16, Acts 16, and we'll be reading from verse 16 all the way to the end of the chapter. Beginning in verse 16, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul having become greatly annoyed turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged him into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. When he brought them up into his house and set food before him and rejoicing along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. God, we admit that as we consider the reality of how we as your people, as Christians, are called to engage the world around us, to engage culture, to engage people who don't know you, Father, we we need your wisdom. And, And God, I pray that this morning that through your word you would help us to see what you have called us to do, how you have called us to live. And Father, that we would respond to that by, by obeying that, by, by living out the life that you've called us to live in the culture in which we are. So God, we desire that and we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. 
Now, as we consider this question of how we're to engage and interact with culture, I think there's some points from this passage that are very helpful for us as Christians today. And the the first thing is that if we are going to engage culture wisely and well, we need to be willing to experience opposition for our beliefs. We need to be willing to experience opposition for our beliefs. You see, Paul and Silas have, have been out preaching the gospel, and as often happens, it offends people. And, but, but the biggest offense in this passage is, is not just preaching the gospel, but specifically there is a slave girl. And this slave girl is possessed by demons. And she is being used by her owners uh, to make money by telling people's fortunes. And when Paul sees this, he, he sets her free. He, he casts out the demon that is in her. And that presents a problem for her owners who are basically uh, doing human trafficking, right? That's kind of how they're using her. And, and now he has taken away their opportunity to make money. And so they are outraged and they drag Paul and Silas into the center of town and they are unjustly condemned, right? They are, they are charged with, with crimes that they did not commit. And ultimately the response is they are beaten with rods, with many blows. This would have been incredibly painful. And then they are thrown into the inner prison. Now, Paul and Silas knew that preaching the gospel was going to create opposition. And in the same way, if we are to preach the gospel, if we are to hold fast and confident to the beliefs that, that we see in Scripture, and if we're to share our faith as we're called to do, we will face opposition. Now, we will likely not have this experience, right? Likely, we will not have people who will beat us with rods and throw us in jail, at least not now. But what we will have, and what, what is an even more and more realistic uh, possibility in our lives, is that we will be rejected, we will be opposed, people will hate us for our positions, we will, we will be called bigots, we will be called narrow-minded if we hold to our faith. Now, now, people generally don't have a problem with us being religious or even Christians as long as we kind of keep it to ourselves, right? And, and people generally like Jesus, uh, they, they like his teachings on love, his teachings on forgiveness. And so they're kind of okay with that. But once we actually start to share our faith, and once we actually stand up for the beliefs of Scripture on issues like, like marriage and, and family and abortion and, and the, the concept that Jesus is the only way to salvation, that, now that is what causes people to be outraged. And I think for us, we need to realize that that is the case. Right? And that has been the case throughout history. We've kind of had this context within culture, within the South, where we've been a little more acceptable. But from the time of Christ, it has always been expected that the followers of Jesus will not just be accepted and welcomed. Right? There's always going to be this opposition, this difference, if we do what Christ has called us to do. And so we must not be shocked, right? We must not be outraged. And as the culture around us grows more and more opposed to Christianity and more and more against what we believe, we have to realize, hear this, we will not be seen as normal. Christians will not be seen as normal. But then again, we never really should have tried to be in the first place. And so this is the reality. If we are Christians who are engaging culture, we will be opposed and we must not be shocked when it happens. Second thing that we see in this passage is that we're, if we are to effectively engage culture, engage the people around us with the gospel, we must be willing to give up our rights for the sake of others. Now, the Romans were not known for being kind, sweet people. 
okay? They didn't like give out stickers and balloons. They were incredibly violent, and, and certain parts of the country have different stereotypes, you know, people in Chicago or people in New York or, you know, wherever. And, and, and there was a stereotype of brutality and violence, and it was for a reason, right? They hurt people, and they enjoyed it. And some of the most brutal people in the Roman context were the jailers. And so we see that, that Paul and Silas, they're, they're put into the hands of this jailer, and they are tortured, and they are thrown into the innermost cell of this jail. And that would have been the, the darkest, most vile, disgusting place. And then they were, they were uh, put in stocks, and these stocks would have been chains that, that come down from the ceiling and would hold their feet up and, and, and keep their legs in a very painful position, and their backs would have just been beaten, they would have been torn, and they are put up against this vile, filthy ground that, that literally the waste of the jail would, would converge on this innermost cell, and they were what we would call miserable, right? This is not a fun, enjoyable place to be. This is incredible pain. This is, this is an experience that, that likely none of us in this room have had. And how do they respond to this, right? How, how, when, how do Paul and Silas respond to being falsely accused, being tortured and beaten, and being put in prison, right? How do, how do they respond to this? And, and the response we see in verse 25 is that they are praying and singing hymns to God. Now, this doesn't make any sense, right? When we consider this, that, that they would respond this way, it doesn't make sense to us. We, we don't understand how they could respond that way you see, they don't lash out in anger against the authorities, against the jailer, against the mistreatment they've experienced. And they don't even cry out in agony and pain over what is happening to them. And the reason that they can do this is because they are so completely consumed and focused on God and his presence with them and the mission that he has called them to that they can sing even in this type of pain. Now, how do you respond typically to, to pain or, or, or mistreatment in your life? Right? How, how do you typically respond to that? If I'm honest, as I consider this, I've been in, in, incredibly uh, just overwhelmed and, and convicted by the fact that I often respond to pain and mistreatment by losing my joy, by being grumpy, right? By, by thinking about myself and, and complaining and getting angry, but these men had none of that, right? And I think the reason we have to see is that these men were not just being brave. They were, they were not just being brave men, but they understood that they were part of something that was, that was much deeper than just a jail cell or a corrupt Roman ruler. You see, as they laid in the cell, over the voices of criminals yelling and of chains creaking, they heard the voice of Jesus saying, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your heaven, reward in heaven is great. The only way for you to respond to being rejected or ridiculed or experiencing pain in your life and to still have joy, to still sing praises to God is have a deep confidence and faith 
that even the worst moments of your life are not outside of the power of Christ, that Jesus is still in control. And you have to understand that you are part of a kingdom that will never end. And there is an eternal reward ahead of you that even the greatest moments of pleasure in this life are just a small foretaste of what every second will be like as you experience perfect pleasure and joy and peace for all of eternity with Christ. You see, C.S. Lewis writes this. He says, some mortals say of temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven once attained will work backwards and turn even that agony into glory. You see, we have to keep our focus on eternity. This is what Paul writes in Colossians 2, to set your minds on things that are above, not on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. We have to maintain an eternal focus. We have to set our minds on things that are above and not on this earth and even the experiences that we are having. You see, Paul and Silas were able to endure being mistreated by rulers of this world because they understood that what lay ahead of them was an eternity where they would rule and reign with Christ. And they were able to endure nights and days and weeks of pain and mistreatment because they knew that what lay ahead of them was literally trillions and trillions of years when they would be free from pain and experiencing perfect pleasure and peace with Christ. But in this life, Jesus had called them to a mission. For this short time, Jesus had called them to a mission. And in order to follow that mission, they would have to experience pain and suffering and rejection. But they knew that all that they were doing was for their king. And so they were able, on the darkest night of their lives, to sing and praise God. The question we have to ask ourselves is, are we? Are we able to have that focus even in our difficulties? Well, suddenly we see as they are singing, God miraculously provides an earthquake. And this earthquake breaks the chains, it opens their cell, and they are free to go. And if you can imagine being in the pain that I described, in the, the situation that they were in in this jail, and God were to bring an earthquake, and he were to open the door of your jail cell, what would you do? I can tell you what I would do. I would be gone. Right? There is no question about it. I would be out of there. I would run for my life and not look back. But that's not how Paul and Silas respond. Instead, they stay there. And the reason that they do this, the reason they don't take their freedom and run for their lives is because they are focused on the mission of making disciples over and above their own personal rights and freedoms. They don't look at their own interests because they are more concerned about a man in front of them that God has called them to bring salvation to. And ultimately, this is the same man that has beaten them, that has spit upon them, and has thrown them into the worst prison cell in the jail. And yet they stay there. They refuse to leave for him. You see, what happens is when the jailer sees that the, the doors are open, that the chains are broken, he assumes, as we would, that everyone is left. And he knows that the punishment for letting people go free was going to be his own life, that, that that would have been what he was facing. And so as an honorable citizen, as well as honestly a person who knew that it would be less painful than if he 
submitted himself to the Roman rulers, he pulled his sword out and he was prepared to take his own life. And Paul sees this and and he sees the jailer. He sees him about to kill himself and he stops him. The same man who has beaten and mistreated him. And he tells him that all the prisoners are still there. Why would he do this? Because he doesn't look at the jailer and see an enemy who has mistreated him. But instead, he sees a man who needs salvation. You see, if we are to live on mission, we are going to have to give up our own rights in order to reach people with the gospel. This means that we are not, as Christians, to be people who live in outrage and offense. Right? This means that we, as Christians, are not people who are outraged when people don't tell us Merry Christmas. We, we are people who are not outraged and angry based upon what Starbucks does or do not, does not put on their cups. Because we understand that the culture around us that does not follow Christ is not our enemies, but ultimately they are the mission that Christ has called us to. And so we must live with that mindset that we will be not be outraged and fight against them as enemies, but they will love them as the people that Christ has called us to love and to take the gospel to. We see that that's exactly what Paul and Silas do. They are focused on the mission of Christ, and in order to accomplish the mission of Christ, they have to overlook their own needs and their own freedom. And they have compassion on this Philippian jailer. And we see the effect that it has on this jailer. You see, the jailer is a man who is in a time of crisis, right? He is in a time where he is hopeless, where he is desperate, and he does not know what to do. And when Paul and Silas see that, they share the gospel. And you see, what happens is this man has already seen that something is different about them. I mean, imagine this. Imagine how many, how many prisoners this man had seen come into his jail and experience torture. And the natural response is they cry out, they're angry, they fight. And now all of a sudden he sees these men who come in and their response is that they sing, right? Something's different about them. And then he sees that when these men have the opportunity to run for their freedom, they give it up. Why? Because they care about him and they want his life to be spared. And he sees the difference. And I wonder, do people see the difference in us? Do they see that there's something different in us? And the jailer does. And he says, I want that. I'm hopeless. I can't fix myself. I want what they have. And so he cries out. He asks them, what must I do to be saved? And notice their response. It's very simple in verse 31. Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. It's a very simple response. See, Paul doesn't give this man a list of things that he needs to do. He doesn't tell this man that he needs to clean himself up in order to somehow qualify himself for salvation. What does he tell him that he needs to do? Simply believe in what Jesus has done for him on the cross. And maybe... Some of you here this morning are are like the jailer. You know that you've made a mess of your life. You know that you've tried to fix yourself and it hasn't worked. And the message of the gospel is to stop trying. To realize you don't have to figure it out. You don't have to have all of the answers. You don't have to even know what life is going to be look like if you choose to follow Christ. All you have to do 
is to understand that Jesus Christ loves you, that he died on the cross for your sins, and if you will believe and trust in him, that he will forgive you, and he will save you, and he will rescue you. And if you do that, if you trust in Christ and what he has done, you will experience salvation. And ultimately, that's what this jailer experiences. He experiences freedom after he trusts in Christ, and we immediately see a change in his life, right? This is the man who has beaten people and caused wounds, and what do we see him doing now? He's cleaning their wounds. This is the man whose job has been to deprive people of food and to torture them, and now what is he doing? He's serving them a meal and caring for their needs. This is an incredible change in his life. It shows that he is no longer living for himself, but he is now living for Christ. And the the greatest display we see of this is this man does what? After he does those things, what does he do? He gets baptized. And this is what we see over and over throughout Scripture is that the response of people trusting in Christ and being saved is that they identify with Christ through baptism. That's the first step. And, and so he takes this step. And I think that there may be many in here this morning who have been saved. You have trusted in Christ. You have believed in Christ. But you have not taken that step of baptism. And I think the clear command across Scripture is to identify with Christ through baptism. To give a picture that you are no longer living for yourself, but you are living for Christ. And you're willing to display that through being baptized. And maybe there's some of you this morning who have never truly been saved. You, you know that you're still trying to fix yourself. You're trying to figure things out on your own. You're trying to, to somehow make this life work in your own power. And the call to you today is to stop that, to quit trying and to realize you never can, right? It's never going to work. But ultimately, Christ can. And he's died on the cross, and you need to trust in him and follow him with your life. And if the, either one of those, if you, if you want to take the step of baptism or you realize, man, I need to be saved, we have a, a care and prayer room that's right through those doors and, and in the foyer. And we would love for you to go there. There's people who would love to talk to you about salvation or being baptized as soon as the service is over. But in all of this, we see that Paul uses, or that God uses Paul and Silas to bring freedom through this jailer. And the only way that they can do that is by giving up their Freedom by giving up their personal offense and focusing on the mission. And what we can learn from this is that our goal in life should not be to win arguments. Anybody like to win arguments? <laughs> right? Our focus in life should not be to win arguments or, or, or to somehow uh, win these, these cultural positions. Our focus should be to win people to Christ. Right? And that's what we live for. And in order to do that, we're going to have to give up our, our own rights. We're going to have to lay down our freedoms for the sake of others and for the sake of the mission that Christ has called us to. We should not be people who live in outrage and offense, but people who live lives of love on mission for Christ. The next thing that we'll see is in order to effectively engage culture, to, to interact with people in our culture, is that we must be willing to stand up for the rights of others. Now, what you see here is the magistrate. So one of the, the Roman leaders, he hears what's happening, right? He hears that the, the earthquake has happened, that these men have been released from, from jail, and now they're living with the jailer. And so he sends the police to come and tell them to basically disappear, right? To tell them just to sneak out and leave and, and disappear from the city. And Paul's response is, absolutely not. 
Because Paul says, look, we have been treated unjustly. We have been charged with crimes we didn't commit. We have been beaten unfairly. We have been thrown into jail in a way that is unlawful. We will not simply just disappear and let this thing go away. He says, you're going to have to come to us and escort us out and apologize to us yourself. Now, when we, when we hear this, it sounds like Paul is, is just kind of standing up against the man, right? Like, like that he is, is just trying to, to somehow defy the government. But we've seen throughout this passage that that's not Paul's focus, right? He's been willing to give up his rights. And, and, and he's done that consistently. So what is motivating Paul to stand up for his rights, to, to stand up against the government? Well, ultimately, the reason is because he's focused on others, He's concerned about the other Christians in Philippi who would be treated unjustly like he had been treated. And he knows that if the magistrates, if the Roman leaders have to come and apologize to him and escort him out, it will be a public spectacle. And they will be less likely to mistreat other Christians in Philippi. And we see that immediately after this, where does Paul go? After they come and apologize and escort him out, he goes to Lydia's house. And we know that Lydia's house was the place that the church in Philippi was meeting. And so he sees the other Christians, and these are the very people that Paul is standing up for. Because he knows that in Philippi, they're the people who are weak. They're the people that the Roman government would look at and think they don't matter. We can treat them unjustly. Their lives don't matter. And for their sake, Paul stands up for the rights that he has. He stands up for justice, and he uses the law and the opportunity and responsibilities that he has a, as a Roman citizen to protect, protect them from being treated unjustly. And in the same way as Christians in this culture, as, as citizens of America, we are also called to use the rights and the responsibilities that we have within the law to stand up for those who are likely to be treated unjustly. We as Christians have a responsibility to use the opportunities of our citizenship to protect those who cannot stand up for themselves. And there are many ways that this should flesh out in, in the way that we treat and care for those who are treated unjustly. But I would say that the primary way, the, the primary call, if we're looking for those who are treated unjustly, who need protection, we must focus on the unborn. The unborn represent the most helpless segment of our culture, and yet at the same time, numerically, those who are most at risk. You see, every year, the most conservative estimates would say that in America, over one million babies, well over one million babies, are aborted. And we experienced this in our own lives. When, when, when we were pregnant with, when Jill was pregnant with Judson, uh, the doctors told us that we needed to go to a genetic counselor. And that genetic counselor was telling us that there might be conditions that were, that were unsuitable for life that would be dangerous. And, and there was the option on the table of an abortion. I know many of you guys have had this as, as well. And the reality is that of, of women and couples who are, who are notified about disabilities like Down syndrome, before the baby is born, over 90% are aborted. This is a reality. We can't just stand back as Christians. We can't just stand back as the church and ignore. Because God's word clearly tells us 
that these lives matter. And I'm not trying to be political. I hope you see this. This is not a political position I'm trying to make. I'm trying to point us to what Scripture says. And, and Scripture shows us over and over that, that these lives matter, that God has created them. Psalm 139 says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. You see, even though the world around us cannot see an unborn baby, the Bible tells us God can. And that even in the earliest stages, God is crafting and he is forming and he's creating them into the person that he's creating them to be. You see, science even tells us that there is, there is life here. At, at eight weeks, there are many things we know about an unborn baby, right? Technology would show us that at, at, at eight weeks, an unborn baby can suck her thumb, right? At, at eight weeks, science would tell us that if you, if you poke a needle up in there, the baby will recoil and move away to avoid pain. At eight weeks, the brain is functioning. The, the body parts are the organs are fully there and the, the heart is pumping the baby's own blood. It's not the mom's blood, but the baby has its own individual blood and has its, even at that point its own individual fingerprint. And yet virtually every one of the one million abortions that will happen this year will happen after this point, after eight weeks. As the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission says, Russell Moore says, when the culture tells us that unborn children don't matter or that they're not viable or useful, or when the culture tells us that the children with Down syndrome or autism don't matter, we have a word from God that tells us the culture does not define dignity because the culture is not Lord. You see, as a church, as Christians, we can't sit back and watch as millions of unborn lives are, are dismembered and destroyed and placed in bags marked medical waste and discarded. We can't just sit back and do nothing. We're called to stand up for justice. We're called to take the rights that we have to protect these unborn lives. And so what do we do? What practical, tangible things can we do with this reality, right? And, and I think the first is that we're, we, sh we should be informed, right? We should understand this issue as well as, as well as the other cultural issues that are going around us. We should understand the facts of what's going on. And one organization that is very helpful as a resource with, with just that of, of informing and resourcing us as Christians in this cult culture is the Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission. So we're gonna watch a video right now that tells us a little bit more about the ERLC. They provide a very narrow category of what a religious organization is in ways that simply don't reflect to the way that religious people live out to our lives. But I think the constitutional question before the court right now isn't whether or not same-sex marriage is a good or a bad idea. It's whether or not citizens have constitutional authority to pass laws about what Let's marriage is. Our founding fathers laid out the principle of life, and today we have an opportunity to affirm and carry on that mantle by passing the Protect Life Act. Are you tired of the shouting match between Democrats and Republicans, blue states and red states? What should our political engagement look like as the followers of Jesus Christ? How does a Christian live in today's culture, showing the kingdom of God to those around us? The Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission exists to walk with the church through these difficult and complex questions. Are you equipped to answer them? Learn more at 
ERLC.com. This morning we are uh, we have the ERLC uh, out in the foyer. There's a there's a display that's set up and. And uh, we actually have two partners. One of them is my wife uh, here at uh, Foothills Church that, that are employees of the Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission. We would encourage you guys to go there to talk to them. I would, I would love to see all of our people sign up for their weekly newsletter. They have an email uh, and, and it, it kind of informs you on what the, the current issues are uh, culturally, ethically, and, and how we can respond to them biblically. It's an incredible resource. Also, uh, they are, along with Focus on the Family, putting on uh, an event called the Evangelicals for Life Conference that'll be January 21st and 22nd in Washington, D.C. And some of the leading Christian voices uh, in America will be speaking in this, and, and it'll actually be in partnership with the March for Life, joining thousands of other Christians in Washington to stand up for the unborn. And so I would encourage you guys, if you're able, they, they're making a special discounted rate for Foothills Church uh, people. And so, and so you, can, you can hear more about that as well at their display in the lobby. Uh, but also the Pregnancy Resource Center here, uh, we, we, we highlighted them in the video in the five, but this is an organization that is, that is working with women who are considering abortion and they are, they are encouraging them uh, to consider all of their options and they're resourcing those who do choose life. And, and so encourage, support, uh, be part of that, serve uh, at their, their organization. We, part of the Christmas offering that we'll be taking up December 13th, we'll be going to that as well as we partner with them as a church. And so, and, and so the final thing though is, is even beyond the other organizations, we just need to be people who, who not only tell women to choose life, but that we actually support and encourage and help them after they do. Right, that, that women who make this choice, that, that we, we help resource them. We help them with diapers and, and bottles and we help watch their kids. And ne- next week, uh, we'll be talking about Safe Families for Children, which is one way you can do that. But, but just in general, we as a church, we as Christians, when we see people around us who make this choice, we need, need to do everything we can to encourage and support them with the very difficult realities of life after they choose to have a baby. Now, I realize that, that this morning, especially as I'm talking about abortion, there, there are people that, that, that struggle with this. And, and I know I'm not ignorant of the fact that there are likely women in this room who've had abortions. There are likely men in this room who have encouraged or paid for abortions. And, and I hope you know that my purpose is not at all to make you feel guilty or ashamed. That is, that is not my intention at all. My intention and my focus is, is ultimately, if that's you, it's to point you to the good news of the gospel, which says that if you turn from your sin and you, you have trusted in Christ, that you will find the, the penalty, the punishment for any part that you have played in abortion or anything around this issue, that it has been paid completely by Christ on the cross. You see, this is the message of the scripture and over and over again, we see it first John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, all unrighteousness. There's no unforgivable sins in this mix, right? You're you're not a second-class Christian. The full unrighteousness of sin has been cleansed by Christ. And, And here's the deal. This is not just for people who have had abortions. All of our sins need this. We're all desperate. We've all rebelled against God. We're desperately in need of His grace and forgiveness. And we need to be reminded of this, that on the cross, Christ has paid the penalty of our sins. We are forgiven. Because you see, so often we forget this. So often we begin to live with guilt and discouragement and shame. 
And so we need to be reminded of the gospel over and over and over again. And the way that Christ has given us to do that, the way that Christ reminds us of this with a tangible, physical reminder is through the Lord's Supper. And so that's what we're gonna do together this morning. We're gonna celebrate the Lord's Supper. And and, uh, before we do that, I wanna read a passage from from 1 Corinthians. We'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and looking at verses 23 through through 26. For I've received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You see, when, when, you, when you take the piece of bread that we're about to pass out, it's a physical reminder of the fact that Jesus' body was broken for you. That his flesh was beaten and torn and nailed to a cross in your place. And when you take the cup of juice, it's a reminder of the fact that the blood of Christ was poured out on the cross for you. And that if you trust in him, it will cleanse you completely. It will cleanse the depths of all of your sins, regardless of what you've done. And ultimately, the Lord's Supper also looks forward to a day. It looks forward to a day when Christ will return as King. And we, along with every other Christian throughout all of history, will join together at a supper and a celebration with him as the king on a cross has now returned as a king with a crown. And he establishes a kingdom where there would be no more death. There'll be no more suffering. There'll be no more pain. There will be eternal joy and peace and hope through Christ. And so as you take these elements, that's, that's what I want to encourage you to do this morning. To remember that these represent the fact that your sins have been completely and totally paid for on the cross. So begin this time as as we'll we'll pass these out in just a a minute, begin this time with just confession, confessing sins. And then spend time remembering as as you consider the elements, as you consider what Christ has done, that you are made completely righteous and clean. That if you have trusted in Christ, that God does not look upon you and see your sin. He does not look upon you as a person who has had an abortion. He does not look upon you as a person who is an adulterer. He does not look upon you as a person who is even any kind of sinner. But when he looks upon you, he sees the perfect righteousness of his son. And that you are completely loved and accepted in him. So I'm going to pray and we're going to pass out the elements. And as you're ready, you take the cup and the bread on your own. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace in our lives. God, we recognize that this is not just about one issue. There is no sin that's greater than other sin. And Father, we come together, we unite together to confess that we are sinners. 
We are those who have rebelled against you if we've chosen to follow our own way instead of yours. And Father, we realize that because of that, we are hopeless. We are lost. We cannot fix ourselves and we've tried and tried and it never works. And so Father, we thank you that you came to us, that though we live sinful lives, that we fail over and over again, that Jesus lived perfectly. He lived the righteous life that we failed to live. And though we stare death in the face, though we deserve death and hell, that your son died in our place and took our punishment. And so Father, as we take the bread and the cup, may our hearts and our minds be overwhelmed by the grace and forgiveness and righteousness that we have through you. Father, may this morning, may the rest of our lives be lived ultimately to bring glory to King Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com.